Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Uh, but we're here tonight to celebrate Ramona Ossible and her new short story collection, A Guide to Being Born. <laughs> Woot, indeed. Uh, her novel, No One Is Here Except All of Us, is one of my favorite books of last year. Uh, it's a beautifully written novel sparked by the tantalizing suggestion that stories are powerful enough to change ourselves and our reality. I'm so excited that just over a year later, Ramona has a new short story collection and that we at Skylight get to host the launch party. A Guide to Being Born has been described as beautiful by The Atlantic and luminous by Flavorwire, and the author has been called a master stylist by Booklist. Here to tell us more about this exciting new collection is the author. Please help me give her a warm welcome, Ramona Ospel. Thank you, Mary. Thank you to Skylight, and thanks all of you for coming. This is, it's weird, it's sort of a little deja vu to be back here so soon, but I'm really excited, and it's somehow a lot less scary the second time around, so yay. I have my little nursey water bottle here. I'll be nursing it. Um, so I'm actually just going to get started and read you a whole story. It's sh short enough to do so. I think it should be about 20 minutes, and the story is called Tributaries. The girls are wormed out across the sorry. The girls are wormed out across the floor under the down comforters, even though daytime is hardly over, trying to get a jump start on the slumber party. My parents both have perfect love arms, Genevieve tells her friends. Both of them can write. They can write love letters to each other. It's almost sick. No one thinks this is sick. Everyone wants this. Feeney, Mary Beth, Sarah P, and Sarah T all want to have the proof. Though the girls know many two armors, even some who seem happy and in love, what they talk about are those with love-grown arms. My mom doesn't have anything, and my dad just has fingers growing out of his chest. He can't control them, and they grab at anything that is close enough, says Feeney. My grandmother has seven, but she was always married to my grandfather. She says she fell in love with him over and over, Sarah T. adds. Seven is an unusual number. Two sometimes, maybe three, but past that, something important must have gone wrong. 
And still, the girls are greeted every morning by the television news anchors, their teeth white, their hair unyielding, and their single, perfect, love-grown arms offering no hint of uncertainty. Sarah P. lowers her head. My dad's arm just keeps growing. It drags on the floor. It is soft, and he can wrap it up and tie it in a knot. Genevieve, putting her hand on Sarah P.'s sleeping bag burrowed body, says, I wonder what mine will be like. I'd like to have two. I think it's better to fall in love twice, once to try it out and twice to know for sure. I want the first arm to be a stump and the second to be full grown. I only want one. I only want one perfect one, Feeney shakes her head. The girls go quiet and all the arms of all the loves they do not have yet beat silent beneath their skin. They thump and prepare. After all the students save the detentioners have left the building for the weekend, Principal Kevin again tells the story of his love. His wife's beauty surpasses the Louvre, the Sistine. Both his secretaries chirp. They wide-eye his love-grown arm and tilt their heads and wish for what he has. You might not know what it feels like, but I do, he tells them, and it's terrific. In fact, Principal Kevin stuffs his third sleeve. He stuffs it, but no one at school knows he does. The sleeve is filled with a prosthetic, a real fake arm commissioned from the lab at the hospital. It screws onto a threaded metal disc implanted in his chest. At the right end, a stump. The stump is sewn up to look like the hand has been amputated. Principal Kevin is smart, smart enough to know that a fake hand looks fake, and instead of giving up the whole beautiful vision, he tells a story about a kitchen fire in which he saved his wife and daughter, but his third hand, his lovely third hand, was burned to a crisp. But Principal Kevin knows himself. He is sure that if he did have a love arm, and if he had lost the hand to it, he would have wanted a replacement. It's the kind of man he is, everything in its place. So attached to the very real-looking stump with big, obvious screws is a wooden hand. It is the fakest he could find, an art class model. Against this, the arm looks especially lifelike. When he comes to the end of the story, one he has told more than once to everyone he has ever met, he manually straightens the jointed wooden fingers and brushes them against each of his secretary's right cheeks. <laughs> the hand burned, he muses. But the arm resisted. The arm did not even singe. Few of Principal Kevin's students, his daughter Genevieve among them, have any love arm development. The girls check constantly in the bathroom between classes, inviting each other to inspect the soft skin of their side body for bumps. They say they are falling in love, not with the specifics of one boy, but with the idea that such a thing is possible that they belong to a species built to snap together in everlasting pairs. They feel themselves falling in love with the entirety of the opposite gender, with their own blooming selves, but their bodies do nothing to corroborate. Their skeletons are stubborn and unchanged. For the boys, any new protrusions would be bad for their social standing. Unless they are extremely religious or plan on a just legal wedding, an unmoved form is an asset. Certain other anatomical parts have made some very favorable changes, but love can't break the seal. 
After high school, this changes. Older brothers are proud of their arms. They sit on thrift store couches where girlfriends rub lotion onto the new branches and kiss them and want to make love so often because there is proof that what they have is real, that something has changed because of it. They lie close in twin, be in twin beds afterwards and put their extra arms side by side. They let the unfinished appendages warm each other up just by pressing. During after-school detention, Miss C lectures about Amelia Earhart because she wants to and the audience can't go anywhere. <laughs> she zooms herself around the room like an airplane, making swooping turns between desks. She is a two-armor, but that's not the whole story. From the waist up, she's covered in hands, dozens. Under the cover of clothing, their fingers move and stretch and wriggle. Sixteen, sixteen-year-olds keep out of her way until she drops suddenly and kneels under a desk. Blammo, she says in a loud whisper. I'm gone, disappeared, just like that. She does not move for a long moment. Chairs squeak. Students hiss. Miss C remains disappeared at a pair of sneakered feet. The boy reaches down like it is an accident and touches her head. He can feel her sky-bound heat. When she stands up, she's rippling. The fingers twitter beneath her blouse. After the bell in the hall, the boy sticks his chest out and imitates with his two original hands. Oh, Amelia Earhart, I want to jump your bones, he squawks. Miss C sticks her head out the door. You've got a poker face now, she tells him, but your body will give you away soon enough. The high school boys keep rubber gloves in their wallets and inflate them when they want to try to win a girl over. They tuck them under their shirts and let the bulging, breath-warm air fingers reach out at their dates, indicating what could be. <laughs> of course, the girls know the hands are stand-ins, but when the boys say, I could really develop feelings, and they have the visual aid, and when the music pumping out of the speakers has someone singing a harmony and someone singing a melody, the drapery of clothing is easily removed, and their desperately hopeful limbs cross and twist and hold. Even Principal Kevin's mail comes addressed to Principal Kevin. On this Friday, while he waits for his wife to come home and remove her arm so that he can remove his arm so that he can enjoy the evening unencumbered, he spreads, he spreads the envelopes out on the table until the whole surface is covered with his name. They ask, please, if you could spare some money for the children. Say, do you have any idea what kind of excellent interest rate you deserve? They report the therms used to keep the house warm, his wife's desires made known to him by her spending on the platinum credit card. A note from his daughter. Dad, I love you and I'm at Feeney's for the night. Genevieve. He is alone with the facts of his existence and it makes him tired, just looking at the debts and balances. His wife comes in from her exercise class and she finds him here wilted. He looks at her and picks the prosthetic up with his good left hand and like a bone. Look what I found. I take this from me. I've been waiting for you. You could have done it yourself, she says. It's yours. I want you to do it. We have the PTA meeting tonight, she reminds him, kissing the arm as if it were real. As if it does not whisper her to her that her eyes to him are tiny emptiness and her hair a strangle of ropes and her heart a flicked rolling marble. Will you go in my place? Tell them it's a headache. I just want a nap and a break. She kneels on the floor in front of him and takes his shirt off, then twists the arm to the left. The elbow bends as she unscrews, so the arm faces in all the wrong directions. 
She puts the arm down on a chair, brushing the hair so it faces in one direction like wind-blown wheat. She kisses his cheek and returns him to the kingdom of bills. She comes back a moment later with a cloth to wipe clean the metal threads of the attachment, both innie and outie. They get sweat damp throughout the day. A shimmer of salt crusts the edge. She dries. She oils and dries again. She does not take care of his fake love arm with her real one. She lets that sit against her side, the fingers spread out against her, quiet and still. It is her born-on hands she tends to him with, just as he tends to her with his. Principal Kevin's arm needs caring for like leather does, cleaning and mink oil. While he sits with the mail, his wife takes it with her into the bathtub and lets it float there while she washes herself, her triangles and spheres and nubs, and her own third arm, this one very real. She cleans both authentic and created with extra gentle baby shampoo. The wooden hand is heavily waxed, and the water beads then scrambles off as if it is afraid. She closes her eyes and leans back against her twisted up hair, the prosthetic floating limp on the surface of the water, a ship stuck in a tiny, unleavable sea. Good bath, he asks, naked from the bed when she comes out. The sun shoots off the metal hole in his chest and blinds her. She tightens her robe and turns away, places his arm on a stand by the dresser where it stretches straight, pointing out the window at the bug-buzzing evening. You know you are my peach, he says to her. Come and sit. He strokes what she has grown for him. It is elbow length, but unjointed, and has a hand, always carefully manicured. He pushes the cuticles back. My love is bigger than any limb, he tells her. What is mine, then? The boys like to watch Miss C walk down the hall, all those hands and fingers moving together under her clothes, beckoning. This evening, when she makes a trip back and forth to her car, the football team turns from the field where the lowering winter sun skates the grass pink. They watch her search in her bag for keys, which come out glinting. Her hair picks up the light the usual way, but it is her body that receives it in waves, like she is the surface of the ocean and all the water inside is angling for a peek at the great open space of the sky. Missy is really named Clarabelle. She goes into her office alone with the blinds down, door locked, grading papers shirtless before the PTA gets started. Her hands hold things for her red, blue, and green pens, paper clips, and sticky notes. Her breasts are surrounded by a ring of four hands each and look like lakes in a forest, calm, quiet, protected. While she scratches at the paper, the hands clean each other's nails. They hook fingers. <coughs> Principal Kevin's wife also has her own name, which is Jan. She is a committed mother and also has excellent legs. Both are goals she has been able to meet. While the prom committee presents its plan for an Antarctic theme, Clarabelle leans over and whispers to Jan, you've got great legs. She is a fan of this appendage, a limb that does not sprout up but comes exclusively with the original configuration and always in one matched pair. Your daughter's a real contributor lately, she adds. Jan humbles her head but knows it is true. I'm proud of her. I think it's hard being the principal's daughter. He is such an admirable man, Clarabelle says. Hmm, sure. When the meeting is over, they go up to Clarabelle's office for a coffee and look out the small window at the football field. The team practices in the dark for a game they need to win. 
The women talk about teaching and administration. They talk about the graduating class and where they will go to college. Jan's extra hand emerges out of a lavender cuff with a pearl button. Your nails look so nice, Clarabelle remarks. I have too many hands to take that on. It would cost me thousands of dollars. <laughs> that would be quite a project, Jan admits. A flock of blackbirds rushes by and they call out to one another. Jan can see her car in the parking lot waiting to take her home while she will find her husband on the couch devouring popcorn and laughing loudly at the commercials. And this thought makes her stomach sink. You know what? I'll do them for you, Jan says. Your nails. Let's do them. Clarabelle resists the way people do. No, no, there are too many. But already she is unbuttoning her shirt from the bottom up. When it is finally dark, the girls take their clothes off and go in the pool, splash in the hot blue of that gathered liquid. Their skins are a wet slick. Their hair goes pointy and water falls from it in straight beaded lines. I want to love you guys forever, they say to the half-lit faces. The new breasts reach out and sniff at the world they will inhabit. The girls get into the bathtub together, all five, because it is a big one and they are cold. They wash one another's backs with soap that smells like lilacs. Legs slip against legs. The names of the boys they want to love fall out of their mouths. Dry but not yet dressed, Genevieve takes out a permanent marker. She draws parallel lines down the center of her chest and then five loopy fingers of a hand at the end. She writes, Cole P, inside the wrist. Feeney turns away and says, draw one on my back. Pretty soon, they are covered in the outlines of limbs ending in digits. Some drawings are realistic, the arcs of knuckles and nails. Some are more like paws, round and imprecise. The girls sleep in a pile, the scent of the marker sharp on their skin. In the morning, the original drawings will be printed again on whatever skin was pressed there. Even their cheeks will be ghosted with the imaginings of love. As the shirt comes open, the fingers beneath stretch themselves out, crack their knuckles. Clarabelle lies down on her back hands. Who is this hand for, Jen asks, filing the first nails. That is Abraham Lincoln. And next to that is my father. Those were the first two. They grew when I was 18 and I went to Washington for the summer. I sat on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and read his biographies. I watched the lump grow to a ball and then a wrist. The fingers started the same way, lumps and then balls. Jan massages a jewel of lotion into the palm. My father called to tell me he was going to live in Kentucky with a new woman. I love you even though I don't love your mother, he told me. And right then, all at once, this hand erupted out of my chest. They go on. Eleanor Roosevelt, Tom Sawyer, Miss Earhart. A young cousin who died in a flood. Men whom she knew for weeks sometimes, hours sometimes, before an appendage began where they touched her and they took their coats and left. Some of them did not know that I loved them. Many of them were dead. I have never known which ones are real or if all of them were. I have hands that showed up without my ever knowing who they were hoping to touch or hold. Jan thinks about this and her body's agreement to tell the same story she does. Love right away, love still, love always. I think it's wonderful you've loved so much, she says. You've given your whole body over to it. We award medals for much less useful acts. Clarabelle nods her heads and feels the switter of something beating beneath her skin, wanting to exist. But I have proof all over me that no one is alone in my heart. 
Everyone wants to be alone in someone else's heart. In the end, I'm alone in mine. As Jan works, Clarabelle's fingernails become red squares, like windows into the coursing, blooded tributaries beneath, as if Jan has painted her way inside. Genevieve knows that her father's arm is a fake. He likes to take it off when he gets home. He likes to eat his dinner without it in his way, to hug his daughter unimpeded. She does not admit this to her friends because they believe that what her parents have is the lucky thing everyone hopes for. But it is the lie that Genevieve loves, that he built himself what did not come on its own. He said yes, and though his physical form stayed silent, he created a voice for it, made it sing the notes of his song. My husband's arm is plastic, Jan says, and the painted nails wink at her. Oh my God, but he talks about it all the time. <laughs> I know, but he, he must love you though. He must, but he also must not. Climb on, Clarabelle tells her. The many fingers reel her in. How I used to hold the kids on my feet, Jan asks. She climbs on, laughing and nervous. Clarabelle lies on the mattress of her back hands and Jan rests like a platter on the front. Their bodies are held apart. Air travels through the tunnels. Fingers dig themselves in. Jan puts her three arms out like wings to steady herself. Outside, boys crash into each other and land in heaps. Here I am, held up by everyone you've loved, Jan says. See that? When Jan begins to tip, Clarabelle tells her, it's only because you're looking that you can't balance. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. We've got you. Alone this evening, Principal Kevin takes his arm into bed. He lays it down and rubs up against it. He is naked. The hand stays open in a lazy wooden cup. It will only hold what it is given. He takes it into his own hands, places it over himself, moves it around. I love you, he says out loud. Do you know that? I love you. If you say so, he feels the hand tell him. It is cool on his most delicate skin. We all do, he tells it. The hand is bossable. If he wants to grind into it, it is grinded. We all do, he repeats. We all love. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right, now stop. <laughs> now ask me smart questions. <laughs> Marissa, I know you have a question. Okay. <laughs> um, well, what is some of your experience of writing short stories versus writing a novel? I think the, the um, oh, sorry. Do you all hear the question, what's the experience of writing short stories versus writing a novel? I think that the pleasure to pain ratio is much more in my favor with short stories. I just suffer through that first draft. So I, I don't believe for a second that the thing is going to exist until I have the whole beginning to end, which is a really long time when you're writing a novel. So that part hurts. I don't think I work any less hard on any 15-page piece. I'm sure I came back to each of these stories at least 20 times, but I feel like like, I just, once they're, once they're there and they're like alive and crawling around, even if they're kind of stupid for a long time, I feel like I know they're there. I know I can come back to them and I know I can make them grow and make them be alive and make them better. Yeah. 
I guess I know that about a novel. Now, doing it for a second time, I feel like I know that it can happen, but I don't know if it's easier the second time. I also know just how long it took, which is not a great thing to know. <laughs> what else? Tom. I am working on a second novel. I'm working on a second novel and a second collection of stories. Yeah, so it's they're both sort of early on. There are a few stories that I feel like are really pretty well formed, and the novel is completely not. It's I have a lot of pages of it. It'll do something sometime. <laughs> yeah. So how do you know, um, or do you know whether something is a short story or a book? Uh, how do I know whether something is a story or a book? Uh, well, I think that with the stories in this book. The, the sort of conceits were complicated enough that I knew I wasn't going to be able to sustain them for, for 300 pages. Like this story, it would have gotten confusing and you would have gotten lost. And also, the, it's sort of like that. I feel like the, the size of a short story is perfect to ask a really huge question because everybody's sort of just willing to follow you. It's like, oh, I got, I got 20 minutes to try something weird. Let's do it. Where I think a novel is, this is a huge commitment. You have to be able to. You have to be able to explain everything. You have to be able to just like hold up this whole circus tent of stuff. And if you don't know how it works, it's really hard to pull off. Some people can do it, but I think it's harder. And I just love the the way a story gives you the total right to play and to just do everything in the sort of what if realm. Yeah. That almost answers uh, my question that you just said. I wanted to ask how the story developed. And I'm sure it was a lot of kind of playing and what it thing. Yeah, so that, the question is how the, that story that I read developed. And the answer is actually that I was teaching a class and I gave my students the assignment to think of the world and change exactly one rule. So there was a student who wrote a story about a woman whose hair caught on fire when she was angry. And I decided, I was just listing things. I was like, what if this happened? And what if that happened? What if you grew a new arm when you fell in love? You can't take that. That one's mine. <laughs> like, sorry, guys. <laughs> so I wrote it. I basically did the assignment with my class. And it, yeah, it was really fun. It's fun. I love that kind of writing where you have sort of like this little, you, ha you have your parameters. It's like you've got your little pen. And then within that, you can do absolutely anything, which is easier in a way than having all choice in the universe. It's a little overwhelming. Yeah? They are not linked. There are no common characters. Yeah, they're, they're definitely linked thematically. I didn't really realize that when I started. I just was writing stories and writing stories. And then a couple years later, I was like, aha, I have certain things on my mind. <laughs> so they, I, once I figured that out, and I, I came up with a title sort of around there, and then, it, then I wanted to really push that and see how far I could take it. So they're arranged in the book into sections. It goes from birth to gestation to conception, and then finally love. So I wanted to have the whole collection also sort of come together around one birth, in a way. But otherwise, they're completely discrete stories. Matt Summel, I think you probably should have something to say. <laughs> Looking at me like you are. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yes. What do you go to when you are really stuck That is a really good question. How, what do you do when you're stuck? What do I do when I'm stuck? Well, one thing is, there's a combination of two things that 
that you can't do at the same time, but that I think you need both, which is to stay there and not give up and keep going. Just give yourself like a, all right, let's just pretend like we're going to keep working on the story then. <laughs> you don't, this is not the real story. This is a total exercise. Just, just act like you're writing it. And that was helpful for me sometimes because it's just kind of, I don't know, just like fake it till you make it. Um, but then also get up and go for a walk. That's the other counterpart. I feel like every, you know, you get there and you're just like, everything is crushing in on your head and you feel like this is never going to work. This is a total disaster. And then you go get some air and move around and some tiny little doorway opens. And that's all you need. You don't, you don't need to figure the whole thing out at once. You're not, you're never going to do that. I mean, so maybe someone is, but who knows that person or likes them. So <laughs> I think you just need that one, that one little passageway that you know you can keep going. So yeah. And all, sometimes I also try doing other creative things like cook something or I'm not a good artist, but you know, I have a kid, I can draw with crayons. So to just like do something useful. Don't, don't give up though. That's the main thing. I do read a lot too. That's yeah, definitely. When, when I'm writing. Yeah. And I try to read things when I'm writing something, I try to read something different than what I'm writing because otherwise I feel like why bother that other person already did it and it looks really good. So I'm quitting. But I do, I think that reading something excellent when you're writing is incredibly important. And yeah, I definitely do that often. I often start when I have my little writing day, I start by reading some, either a story or maybe even some poem, something short, because I don't have tons of time. So I feel like I need to get some good stuff jumbling around in my brain and then get to work. Yes. The question is about the awesome cover. I don't know anything about it except that I love it. I have no, I, I just like, the, my editor was like, we have a cover, we think it's really good. I'm like, okay, let's see. And then she sent it. I'm like, yep, totally love it. It's perfect. <laughs> so I, yeah, I, I guess the designer's name is Alex Murto. And on the internet, when people are talking about the cover, they talk about his name. So I think he must be someone that people who are paying attention to book design know. But I think it's awesome and I feel so lucky. It's also really weird because it's, I sort of feel like it's I'm more beautiful and more perfect, but like a version of the map of my own brain. I'm like, how did somebody else do that? Like, how did they create an image of all the weird shit that's going on in my head all the time? So that's pretty cool to go out into the world with this. Anybody else? Yes, Michael. Like conception and gestation and stuff. Now that you are still writing, uh, or excuse me, of course, still writing, or writing new projects, working on new projects, does that, do you, in a way that you can perceive this kind of the, having a child seep into that? Or? Yeah, it's really interesting because so much of this book is about sort of the realm of parenthood and birth and there's lots of other things in there too, but there are a bunch of stories that circle that theme. And I wrote all of them before, long before I had a kid. And I think, I don't know if I could have done it now. I sort of feel like it's that thing where when you're too close to something, you can't really figure it out. And I think it was, I was definitely thinking about it for myself and it was, I was sort of entering the part of life where people would have said, congratulations if I got pregnant instead of, oh dear, you know? So it was like, but I still sort of felt like a kid and I felt like, oh, oh wait, really? I thought when I got to this part, I would feel like a grown-up and I would like, I would be the mom? You're telling me that I would be the responsible one? So a lot of the stories were kind of born out of that question of like, who, how do you know how to take care of somebody and what does it mean to take care of somebody and what does it mean to have that 
just giant responsibility and love that probably transforms your entire self and your entire life and that seemed crazy. It still seems crazy though, but I don't know if I could write about that part as directly now. I also think the other thing that is changing is that I have a stronger impulse to take care of my characters. I don't want to just screw them over so much, <laughs> but I'll, don't worry, I'll get over it. It'll be fine. <laughs> Well, just like put them in the worst situations and see how, I mean, I don't, I don't feel like they end up, all they, things end up okay a lot of the time, but I wouldn't, I want to, I want to write things that are, that are complicated and that where things, nobody gets off easy because in the world nobody does. So it would be really boring if I just started writing about how all children are happy and loved and taken care of and everybody has all the time they need and all the friends they need. And so everyone says exactly what they mean. Yeah, that would be a boring story. <laughs> Anything else? All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you all so much for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.